One of the many amazing things about Clubhouse is access. Access to people that I may not already know. One such example is the fact that I got a chance to meet Marcus DePaula, who is an audio engineer, a podcast producer, and an all-around awesome dude. He's the co-founder of Mixtus Media and produces podcasts under his company, Me Only Louder. He also has a pretty rad voice, if you ask me. He's all about helping make the internet a better place by connecting one podcast to one website. The guy knows his stuff when it comes to recording great sound. And so we're going to talk all about that in this episode. He's going to share in detail his own setup. He's going to talk about his three-part production process. And we're going to dive deep into what you should think about when it comes to your recording environment and the room acoustics. We also talk about microphones and more specifically, microphone technique, which is one of the most common mistakes a rookie podcaster makes. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Marcus. It was a clubhouse live recording. And so I'm going to share the first part of this, which is my interview with him. And so without further ado, let's jump straight in to the conversation. Marcus DePaulo, welcome to For the Love of Podcast. Thank you, Billy. It's good to be here. Let's start here, man. I want to talk about WrestleMania. Tell me about that. <laughs> Let's start there. I used to work for audio production company. I used to tour with bands back in the day. And one of the clients was WWE. And they even went like they've been work doing back even when it was WWF before they changed it to E with that lawsuit and all that stuff. And I, <laughs> I was the alternate audio guy. So whenever, cause they did it every week, like nonstop, like even holidays and stuff, whenever that guy, the one guy wanted a, a vacation, I was his backup and I'd go out and do those shows. But also when they would do WrestleMania with the big events, they would bring in a whole bunch of us because the system was like crazy over the top design and all that sort of thing. So it would take days to get it set up and then tore back down. So yeah, my background's in live audio and then I've been doing podcasting for past like five years or so. So, so let's talk about that live experience because I know you toured with bands and at least 10 plus years you were doing that. What did that teach you and help preparation for what you're doing now as an audio engineer and a podcast producer? Talk a little bit about how that experience helped you. Yeah, that's a really good question. I definitely feel like I do have a bit of an edge because of my touring experience. And I think a lot of that comes from just the nature of it's just high pressure. You know, the show has to go on. And with podcasting, if you're not prepared, either mentally or mechanically, you're going to have problems with your show. And especially now that we're streaming, like we're live streaming here on Clubhouse and and we're doing video too, you have to just make sure everything's set and ready to go. I've, I always make sure I've got redundancies just in case. Cause like when you're, when you're on the road, when you're touring, if you have a speaker that blows or an amp that dies, you ha- got to have a backup because you can't just go to a store and get the same stuff, <laughs> especially if you're in the middle of nowhere. So being prepared, making sure that that I have a pre-production process that I go through and I test everything. I reboot my computer beforehand. I make sure everything's ready to go. I have fail safes and backups. Like even I do a lot of client recordings on location. And so I'll make sure in the car, I've got extra mic cables and stands, you know, cause you never know if something's going to break or fall over extra microphones, all that sort of thing. So the touring world really got me prepared for that. It's a lot of work that the client ends up not seeing and the listener ends up not hearing, but I do feel like it makes a difference in the quality of the shows that I do. 
Well, they'll definitely know if the recording disappears, right? right. So I think having those redundancies, I'll tell you, I just recorded a eight hour clubhouse session. Wow. Wouldn't have been that long, but like literally there was like guest after guest that just like mind blowing people that came into cool. the room. The room blew up. I had two hours recorded on Squadcast, six hours that I I did like in a pinch. I had to like record it using like QuickTime and I pressed stop and then I went to go save it and it just air disappeared. Right, right. So it's like, I didn't have that redundancy. I wasn't planning on using QuickTime, but I didn't have anything else set up and I was like in the midst of, of doing it. So you just got to be prepared. And I think yeah. your other point is a really good point. And that is when you're doing something, think of it like you're a pilot, right? A pilot has a checklist for a reason. Yep. So can you tell us a little bit about what's in your checklist? Yeah, especially dealing with remote guests. I have like follow-up emails I'll send to make sure, okay, you've got your headphones, you've got your microphone, because I can't tell you how many times, you know, I show up and like, oh yeah, I forgot to get my microphone or it's in the other room. Do you want me to go get it? I'm like, yes, <laughs> go get the microphone. So the like, there's a whole step of communications that I make sure I have ahead of time. And then for me personally, I just turn everything on. I've got my cockpit set up, which I'll, I'll send a, a picture to you to include in the show notes for the episode and just making sure everything's connected. And I do a quick test for myself before I connect. And that's one of the great things about these new platforms like Squadcast, like we're using now and Riverside and CleanFeed is as you sign on, you can check your levels and make sure the inputs are correct and all that sort of thing. There's no buzzes. The lights are, you know, where they need to be. That was one of the things because video is like, it's, it's not as much my comfort zone as audio is. So the lighting thing, like I'd always forget to switch my lights on that sort of thing. So that's the latest thing I had to add to my checklist. But yeah, it's just going through and making sure, depending on what your equipment is, that each piece of the signal flow of the signal chain that you're using, both audio and video is all connected and working. And how appropriate that you call it your cockpit, especially in my reference to as a pilot, you need, <laughs> you need that checklist and people's lives are on the line in that case, but obviously it's not life and death, but when you're putting so many resources and time and effort into something, you want to make sure that it it's recorded properly and that you don't have any potential hiccups. Right. So I want to ask one more question about your background and then we're going to jump into your three-part production process. Cool. And that is, I know that you've done a lot of studio installations. Mm -hmm. So as you've done those studio installations, what were some of the learnings that you had? I'm sure that you grew a lot and developed and learned so much through that process. What are some things that you gathered during that period of your life? Yeah. The main thing I gathered with the installations I did was learning about acoustics and room, the physical room setup. Uh, and then also just the ergonomics of your workspace and deciding on what's in arm's reach and what's in that rack over there, what makes noise that needs to be in another room, you know, that sort of thing. It's all a big balancing act between the actual room acoustics and then also just with your desk setup, the wiring, making sure the power isn't too close to the audio lines, all that sort of thing, because you can get buzz, especially if you're using really low gain microphones like my SM7B and your A20. But Acoustics was the big thing because I am not an acoustician. I enjoyed taking physics in high school, but that's the extent of my training. <laughs> but I just picked up things from people like you always want to put a surface that absorbs the sound in front of where, you know, the main source is. So it doesn't end up bouncing around the room. If you're blasting your monitors, you, you know, your, your speakers or your voice 
or your guitar amp or whatever it is into a hard wall, it's going to bounce back and start bouncing all over the room, that sort of thing. And then just learning the tricks of the trade of what type of options there are for doing acoustic treatments, sound isolation versus sound treatment, which is another thing that people confuse a lot. Isolation is, you know, keeping everything out of your space, like the traffic noise outside or airplanes going overhead, whereas acoustic treatment is more for inside the room to reduce the echo and that sort of thing. Wow, man. So good. I love that you took all of that from that experience. And that's something that I'm super curious about. And we'll dive into all of that. Not only the ergonomics of having the workstation that will allow you to really be on the fly ready, but then also understanding the acoustics of the room and the nuances there. So we're going to dive into that. I do want to talk about this three-part production process that you have, which I'm super intrigued by. And specifically, I want to tap into why preparation and planning is so important because I think a lot of times people don't realize that if they do the work on the front end, it makes everything else so much easier. So can you share that framework for anyone that doesn't know about it? Yes. And this is definitely something I learned from the studio world and the touring world, like we already talked about. But in the studio world for music, they have this pre-production process where they play through the songs and figure out the arrangements. They figure out the instrumentation. They figure out the chord progressions and where the background vocals are. Like, there's all these little details that they work out beforehand. They don't just get in the studio. And I, and I see so many podcasters that'll just say, okay, I got my mic. I'm going to hit record and just start talking. And then this is my podcast. And if you're a really good speaker, which I am not... <laughs> I end up having to edit myself if I don't know what I'm going to say ahead of time. And we had a, a quick exchange via email so that I could mentally prepare about what we're going to talk about. But I just said, um, there, those kinds of things. <laughs> if you're not mentally prepared, but then also obviously, like we talked about earlier with the mechanical and the electronic preparation and making sure that you're not fumbling with the microphone, you got your headphones dialed in, your gain is set properly all that sort of stuff, that pre-production process, testing everything to make sure it's just going to work when you need it to. So that when I have a client online that I'm recording, that they're not waiting on me. That's, mm -hmm. that's the main part of the pre-production process. And then the other part of it is that mental preparation part where if I'm going to be on mic or if my clients are going to be on mic, I'm there helping them, making sure they're mentally prepared. They know what questions they're going to ask. They've got their water, they've got their notes and everything that they need. Their their iPads charged, their ear pods are charged if they're using those, or AirPods are charged if they're using those, which hopefully they're not. <laughs> but, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just all it's just a lot of little details. And so that pre-production process, even though if there's not a checklist, I just kind of look around and see what there is that could go wrong. And then so that the production process for me is when I hit record. That when it's go time, when we're actually on air, whether we're streaming or not, that everything is in place so that all I can do at that point is focus on the actual conversation. And if I'm not on mic, I will be listening and making notes of things that either need to be edited or things that we can highlight as a part of the content marketing because I, I do some marketing stuff. I do website stuff too. And so I'm always thinking about that too. So I, I make little notes of cool quotes and stuff that they say as we go so that that's the production process, like the actual recording process is what's going on. And then the third step of that is the post-production process and that's the editing and the mixing 
and the publishing and coming up with the show description and the title and all that stuff. And so if I do more work up front and make sure the recording goes as smoothly as possible, that either me or my get or my client is in the best mindset possible. So we have an amazing conversation with as few mistakes as possible. There's no equipment failures. That saves me a ton of time in post. That whole thing of, well, we can just fix it in post. I do not live by that at all. <laughs> I can, but I, feel you, man. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a hundred percent. And having, before getting into podcasting, I was a filmmaker. And so you heard it a lot. Oh, you can fix it in post. You fix it. It's actually way harder for audio than yes. it is for filmmaking. It's way harder. You can fix a lot in post for as in a film, in the film world, but as a podcaster, it's like, it's like taking a photo that's overexposed and, and trying to get that back. Once it's right. gone, it's gone. Right. right. And so for audio, your efforts up front are highly rewarded. And frankly, if you don't put the time in, it's very, very difficult to get to a point where it'll be as pristine as a high quality recording. So in order to get high quality recording, you need, you need to have the right setup. I want to see if you could walk us through your equipment setup from microphone all the way to your computer. If you could share that with us, I think that would be helpful. And then we're going to dive in and talk about each of those pieces a little bit more granularly. Cool. Sounds good. I love my SM7B, which you will see if you're watching the video of this afterwards on camera. It is my favorite vocal mic. I also love your RE20 and I plan on buying one of those as well because I'm doing these workshops where I compare things and I don't have one of those yet. I have three SM7Bs though, mm -hmm. <laughs> so that <laughs> I can record multiple guests for clients on site. The first stage of my signal flow is my SM7B. I have the high boost filter on and the low cut off on that because I like the added clarity that it brings. And I do a bass roll off or a, a low cut in post because I have more control there. For somebody that maybe is unfamiliar with what you just said, can you explain that just a little bit more in a way that somebody that is newer wouldn't, would, would get? Yes, absolutely. So some microphones like my SM7B here and in software as well, uh, you have these EQ filters that you can use to either boost the high end or cut it or, and this microphone has a boost a high boost and a low cut and the low cut rolls it off, but it rolls it off like severely, like mm -hmm. way too much. It's right on the back of the microphone, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So now you can hear how, and I have a boomy voice. If, if you have a higher pitched voice, you might not be able to tell as much, but it, it not just rolls off the low end, but it also ends up accentuating some of the mid range part of my voice, which I don't like. <laughs> so let me mm -hmm. switch it back. So right now the low cut is on so the, it's rolled off on some of the low end of the beefy buh, 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 huh, huh. And a lot of times you'll use the roll off to get rid of plosives, which I have a pop filter inside my mic here. So it's not going to pop. Right. The form factor of the SM7B is such that the pop filter is built into the microphone, correct? Yeah. In addition, I have added a popper blocker inside my microphone, okay. which is a little mesh. It's like a $10 piece of mesh fabric thing. That's like a, a pop filter instead of having it on the outside, like yours, sure. I have it inside the mic, but you have to be really on the mic. Like I have clients that'll be too far away and their breath will go around it because it's just right on the end. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so the, I don't know if you can hear the difference now, but I turned that back off at 80 Hertz. I have a low cut on my audio interface as well. So it's, that's where I'm doing it because I have more control in my box 
It's and it's a mm. little switch that has like just a little angled thing usually on a lot of audio interfaces where the the low it's de- designating that the low frequencies are being rolled off a little bit. And so the reason why we do that is to get rid of any rumble from if I accidentally, you know, hit my desk, uh those really low frequencies really come through. And then plosives as well. If I don't have an adequate pop filter or windscreen, those plosives really kind of explode on those low frequencies when I do my P's and B's. Mm-hmm. I also was a vocal major in college, so I am conscious of how the air movement is happening coming out of my mouth. So I try to minimize that airflow. So on top of having the additional pop filter inside in addition to the windscreen, I'm also actively in my brain telling myself not to like, like just expel right. so much air as I'm talking. So speaking is a skill as well. It, it, it absolutely <laughs> is. And it can be practiced and yeah. it can be done properly and improperly. Okay. So let's, let's get back on track. I didn't mean to disrupt your flow, but that was super helpful. Yeah. Thing, man. Yeah. There are so many little details like this and all of these things are constantly going through my mind and I'm constantly thinking of every little stage along the way. <laughs> the next thing is my mic cable and I made my own cable and it's going through my boom arm and I have a boom arm so that I can get the mic and move it around wherever, you know, and get it right in front of my face. Cause it's the biggest problem, like with the blue Yeti microphone and some of those other ones that just come with a built-in stand is it ends up sitting on your desk way too far away from your mouth, picks up more of your room than your voice. And so that's the biggest mistake I hear is people having their mics too far from their mouth. And I like to be three inches or closer with my SM7B, especially it, the capsules like inside, like your RE20, I think is not, it's a little bit different. So you don't have to be quite as close as I do, but I see people just being way too far away from the microphone, especially SM7Bs. It makes a huge difference, man. Yep. It makes a massive difference. And I, I'm so with you on the Yeti. I, I did a, I, I did this post on LinkedIn. I said, stop Yeti abuse. And I think the problem fundamentally is the microphone's an okay microphone. It's not a great microphone, but people don't know how to use it. They're talking into the top of the microphone right. and it's the side address microphone. Yes. So to your point, I think the biggest problem people have and this, I hope everyone's listening closely is they're talking way back here. So yeah. It's like, yeah, you're not, you're not gonna you're not gonna hear me as well as like right here, you know. So I love that, man. Okay, so so are you using Megami or who who are you using for your cable? I am using Megami. So that that was part of my studio job was wiring up these patch bays and everything. So I know how to solder and I love to solder. I know how to crimp, like I, I used to do these multi-pin connectors and all that stuff for uh snakes. They you know, when you have more than a couple of lines together in one wire, they call it a snake. Uh, but I, Mogami is by far the best wire you can buy. It is expensive if you buy a pre-made cable, but in my opinion, it's worth it because the shielding is better. It, it mm-hmm. reduces any kind of RF interference from being close to, cause you're not going to be able to get completely away from power cables or lights and just the power supply for my video switcher. And there's just wires everywhere going on. So you have to have good shielding in your cables and those cheap cables that come with the boom arms are terrible. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. And not just the cable, but the connector too. That's the other big problem. The, the connector ends up being the weak point. I'm glad you said that because I just got an, I got a new boom, but it has the cable built in. I'm like, oh, because I have Mugami cables yeah. and I was like, I want to use those. Right. I don't want to use this because I know they're cutting corners. I know they're not investing in a high quality cable. So now I got to go and totally retrofit that. Yeah. 
like it's worth helpful. having the double cable run if you've already got a Mogami cable, just run it and drape it over the thing <laughs> right, and have right, that extra right, cable right, inside right, not yeah. working. Just you know? tape it or something. Yeah. <laughs> just take a knife and cut it and pull it back, you know? <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you got your, your cable in, you have your, and go ahead. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm giddy with excitement. No, you're, no, you're it's all good. Sharing a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So we got microphone, cable, boom arm, and the next piece is my audio interface. And I have two, but the one I'm using right now is the Sound Devices Mix Pre 6 2. And it is a field recorder and USB audio interface. It's not a very popular brand in podcasting because it's very expensive, <laughs> but it's what TV and film people use for like all those sound guys you see holding boom arms up over people with the big dead cat thing hanging mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. from the boom arm. Uh, and then also with the wireless packs where they hide the mic, the lapel mic in their hats or their hair or in the visor of the car or whatever. This is what they use in the little bag, you know, with the head, the guys with the bag around their waist and the headphones on. This is what they use. And it has fantastic mic pre's in it with 70 dB of super clean gain. The other kicker that it has that nothing else that I know of has is analog limiters, which mm. means that I cannot make this distort if I wanted to <laughs> with the limiters on. And then on top of that, Mark II series of all of the mix pre devices of, of the line that they came out with, I think last year, is all 32-bit float bit depth. And what mm-hmm. that means is basically the gain inside is unlimited. So even if it's distorted in my headphones, when I get the recording file and post, I can just turn it down and it's not going to be clipped. It's like infinite mm-hmm. gain on the recording. So I don't have to worry about clipping at all. So it's made for like film, like when you have a dialogue thing and then there's a big explosion, obviously the difference in gain is going to be huge. We're not going to be running into that in podcasting, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's a, it's another safeguard that I know that what I'm capturing is going to be spot on exactly what I need. And so it's a safeguard for me with the gain, both the limiter and the, uh, the 32 bit float. Right. It gives you that wide range. That that makes sense. And so you're you're not potentially having issues that you otherwise may if you're not using you know using an interface like that. That makes sense. Yes. And I know you've you've looked at the Apollo. You you're a fan of Universal, but haven't yet you're not you haven't yet because I remember I asked this in one of the clubhouse rooms. You're you're not using I got the Apollo Twin X. I'm now using my road my Roadcaster Pro. Right. But I also I also have the Apollo Twin X. So I'm just like trying to figure out like what what I should do because this one gives me great functionality for uh, being on clubhouse. Yes. But yeah. So I don't know. I, and I do have an Apollo X four. That's what I use, but I don't use it for recording. I use it for mixing because it's not 32 bit float. It doesn't have the built-in analog limiters. It is a fantastic interface. And actually the mic pre's sound better than the roadcaster pros, mic pre's, especially if you use their unison uh, analog emulator, you know, preamp emulators that you can use plugins with, which is sweet. It's amazing yeah. the, the flexibility you have with all of those. Yeah, it's like but yeah. those do add latency. So it, it it it's it's not terrible, but it like I can hear this kind of little phasing thing when I engage that unison preamp that sounds just okay. a little, and, and it, I just have to get used to it on my headphones. It's not bad. It's just different. 
And so I have a MacBook Pro. It's a 2019 15-inch, right before they came out with this 16-inch. I actually just ordered a Mac Mini M1 with an M1 chip in it. So I'm going to hopefully get that later this week. But I'm a big Mac and Apple user guy. And then uh, in addition, I use Logic for my software. Okay. And then for my plugins, I am using some of the UA plugins for mixing. But I uh, also use a lot of plugins by SoftTube. They have a channel strip system with a hardware controller that I use called Console One. And I have a background in analog. When I started doing audio, I'm so old, it was all analog still. Like digital was just at the beginning (laughs) of of stages. So I like having knobs to turn. (laughs) So it helps helps me speed up my process to have this hardware controller for my plugins. (laughs) I I relate to that. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. And the SoftTube plugins also sound fantastic. So I've been really happy with those. And then I have a pair of Cali, I think they're K6s is what they're called. They're the the mo- uh, studio monitors that I have. And then I also use uh, Ultimate Ears UE18 Pro in-ear monitors instead of cans. I have some Sony and uh, Biodynamic headphones that I that clients will use and that, I, that are my backups. But mm-hmm. I edit so much that these custom molded in-ear monitors are way more comfortable because you know, the cans can squeeze your head and <laughs> hurt your ears totally. and stuff. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's a problem. I, I, cause now that I'm on clubhouse and I'm wearing these a lot longer, yeah. I just, at a certain point, I just got to take them off. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. Cause you're so, sweating too. Cause it's like covering up half your face with those velour pads or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Right. So the, and, and this was a, you know, my inner monitors is something I used when I was touring and I got used to using them and, they, and it is an adjustment to get used to having these things inside your ears, but they, they block out external sound. So if my son comes up, I'm like, huh, I, you know, I can't hear him at all, <laughs> but it means I can hear my microphone, you know, everything that's coming in my microphone really, really well. So like with my clients, I can say, Hey, do you have a space heater on in the background? You know, and they're like, wow, how can you hear that? <laughs> Because I've got these really nice headphones. <laughs> yeah, you should hear it too, but they're not, their ears aren't adjusted to that. We're going to talk just a little bit more about equipment and then we'll move into, I want to talk about mic technique and room acoustics, a few other things that are super, super important. So let's first talk about equipment. And, and we already talked about the fact that you have the Shure SM7B, I have the Electro Voice RE20. Mm-hmm. And so those are, I would say, high caliber podcast microphones. I would say gold standard. Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong. Where would you say, like, what would be a mid-grade and maybe a, a USB for somebody that just wants to get started? I, I have my own thought on the USB. Yeah. But I want to hear what you, what you think. And I, I, have, I'm not, I have not tested all of them, but I tested a few of them. Yes. So I'm curious what you would recommend for a mid-range and maybe like a more beginner USB mic. Right. So the RE20 and the SM7B for podcasting to me are hands down the best microphones you can buy. They are actually reasonably reasonably priced at $400 compared to other studio microphones. Like what you see people using on film and voiceover, like professional voiceover actors and stuff, they're using like $1,000 to $3,000 microphones. So a $400 microphone is actually not that bad. Plus these, the EV uh, RE20 and the Shure SM7B are both dynamic microphones instead of condenser. That's great for those of us who are recording in home studios with people doing landscaping and airplanes flying overhead because they, they're not as sensitive. They do require right. more gain, but they don't pick up 
everything like a condenser mic does. So just start by saying that, that these are definitely the top of the line. My second favorite, or I guess my third favorite, because the RE20 and, and SM7B are tied for first place, in my opinion, for podcasting. My, my third favorite microphone is the Samson Q2U. It's a $69 microphone, and it comes with a crappy little tabletop stand, which I can use in a pinch. And it comes with a crappy mic cable that I don't that I just throw away <laughs> because it's terrible. Uh, but if you don't have a mic cable, you got to start somewhere so it, you can use it. I'm a snob and I have plenty of other cables, so that's why I don't need it. But uh, and then it, it's it's both USB and XLR. So what it means okay. is and it's very, very similar. It's almost identical, actually, to the Audio-Technica a2100 and the 2100x that just came out uh, or the a2000 audio technica 2005 which is one that i have they sound very very similar the samson in my to my ear sounds just slightly better at least on my voice it's closer to the sm7b than the audio technica mics are but it like most people won't be able to tell the difference it's just nerds like me that would and for the money you can, like it sounds better than the sm58 which is a 100 dollar mm-hmm. xlr only microphone and it has usb and xlr so you can start off as a single person just with usb and then if you upgrade to an audio interface it still it sounds great into my mixpre 6 sounds great into my apollo via xlr and you can get two of them for for 69 bucks <laughs> it's like you can't beat it. it it's fantastic so that would be the low end like beginner mic the intermediate mic sure just came out with the the mv7 which is uh, an actually an excellent mic too and it sounds really good it actually the the benefit for it and it is 200 249 dollars which is considerably more than the Samsung Q2U and almost as much as my SM7B, but you don't need an audio interface. It's also both USB and XLR. And the added thing that they offer is they have software when you have it connected via USB that has really nice compression, limiting, and EQ. Mm-hmm. And it even has an auto gain function. So that if, if you're not an audio nerd like me, you can set it to like the automatic settings and it actually does a really darn good job. Most of the other devices that have like automatic settings, I usually turn off because they're terrible. This is the first one that I've heard that I would actually use the automatic settings on. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's well worth the money. I know you have that allergic reaction to those uh, to those automatic presets, man. And yeah. it's understandable because you're going to be able to hear a lot more and, and you know anything out of the box isn't going to be as good as something that's customized based on all the other factors and variables. Speaking of other factors and variables, I want to talk about this thing called mic technique. Yes. Uh, Because to your point, we already talked about it a little bit, but I think it warrants us talking about it again. If you only pay attention to this one thing, to your point, I think this is the biggest problem most podcasters have is they're not able to understand how to talk into the microphone, specifically how close they are to talk into the microphone. So can you share a little bit about that nuance and is it just how close they talk? What are the other factors involved to make sure they're getting the best sound using mic, the best kind of mic technique? Yeah. And it all starts with knowing your mic. So even the RE20, that movie that was about Queen that came out a couple of years ago, they had in the trailer an RE20 and it, they were using it like they were recording a bunch of people around the one mic. So the RE20 was pointed at the ceiling. All that to say, you have to know 
<laughs> where you need to be talking into on the microphone <laughs> and mm-hmm. where the microphone should be pointing at, like how it should be pointing at your mouth. Like the blue Yeti, like you mentioned earlier, so many people tilt it over so that the rounded end of it is aiming at their mouth, which kind of makes sense because a lot of rounded, you know, microphones, you, you talk into the end of it, but it's actually a side address microphone. So the microphone technique actually starts with knowing where that pickup element is, which way it's facing, if it's an end address or if it's side address. Uh, your RE20 and my SM7B are end address. That means it's coming out the, the end of the microphone, the skinny side of the microphone. And a side address microphones are like what you see recording musicians or NPR. They use you know those condenser microphones. A Blue Yeti is a side address microphone, even though it doesn't look like one. And that's one of the reasons I don't like it because it, it's not obvious that it's mm-hmm. <laughs> where you need to speak into it. So you need to be aware of that. And then, like you said, knowing how far away you need to be from it. And everybody's voice is different. I have a very boomy voice, so I have to be really careful with the proximity effect. If I get really, really close, there's this proximity effect that makes the low end really, really nice. It also makes the high end more clear, but it also, that accentuates your mouth clicks and noises and stuff like that. Especially if you have a dry mouth problem. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to find that sweet spot where it feels good, where it sounds good. And if you're too far away, it might sound better to you, you know, tonally. But if you're recording in an untreated space at a home studio or just in your bedroom or whatever at home, you're going to be picking up your room acoustics. You're going to be picking up the air conditioner, your dog barking in the next room, your kids playing. So the closer you are to the microphone, the more it picks up your voice and the less it picks up of the ambient noise. And if I, it, the trade-off is that proximity effect, but I can EQ some of the low end that's too much out afterwards. I'd rather EQ it to get the right tone afterwards with the proximity effect than deal with audio that's too far away from the microphone picking up ambient noise. Sounds tonally better, but there's more noise in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's easier yeah, to remove man. EQ than noise. Ah. <sighs> So good. And so we're talking about these levers that we we have access to. One lever is the equipment. One lever is the mic technique. And then another lever is environment mm-hmm. and the room acoustics, which you've already said is something that you learned a lot about through your experience, not only doing home installations, but just being in this space for a long time and understanding the way and I liked what you said. It's like on the other end of where you're projecting, where your voice is going, there should be something soft to absorb that. And yes. I'm going sort of ad hoc, sort of uh, impromptu. I've got like pillows all over the place. Yeah. But I think some people think they need to like invest thousands and thousands of dollars. Yes, they can, but there are workarounds. So for, for the person who maybe isn't ready to like do a full home installation studio, what suggestions do you have for them to take action immediately to make sure that they're their space is as good as possible. And and maybe even that includes picking the right space because maybe they're picking the wrong space. I mean, we've all been there. We interview people and they're in some echoey room. So what's your your advice in that regard? Yes. So picking a space, and this is something I have to do when I'm recording on location with my clients because a lot of times it's at a, a corporate office or at somebody's home office or whatever. Of course, this was pre-pandemic, <laughs> but making sure. So I'll walk around. I want a room that is not all hard surfaces. So if it if there's if it's carpeted, that already is something that I will 
I want to use a room that's carpeted. Or if it has a rug, if it's all hardwood or all concrete or all tile, that's bad. If it's all windows, that's bad because that reflects if it's, there is no furniture in it. That's also bad because the furniture helps break up, even if it's hard furniture, but especially if it's soft furniture, it breaks up those reflective waves from bouncing around the room. So I look for a room that has carpet, that has furniture, that has curtains if there are windows. And even if honestly, like my curtains in my room here are bigger than my windows, they cover actually some of the wall because curtains are soft. And it helps cut down on some of those reflections from off the drywall next to the window. So, you know, some people don't like uh, curtains on their windows, but if it's a recording space, curtains are totally fine. (laughs) And then the other big thing that people don't think about is HVAC or any kind of other noise. You have to pay attention and hear like either the whistle of the air blowing out of the vents, not being too close to your microphone position, or if your blower for the whole house system is like on the other side of the wall and there's this, you know, Mm -hmm. that's going to come through. I lucked out with this home studio. We have my bonus room. The, the HVAC unit is on the complete opposite corner of the house. Like I couldn't get any further away from it. So it's perfect. Like we don't get any noise at all. And the vents are quiet. I make sure they're open and not closed because if they're closed, they start to whistle. (laughs) Those, that sort of thing. So those are the type of things. And then I, it's a big square cube of a room. So besides adding my curtains on the window wall on the, which cover pretty much the whole wall, I build acoustic panels. But if you don't have acoustic panels, if you have a bookcase, if you have blankets that you can hang up and starting with the wall that you're facing so that it's that first reflection of that energy coming out of your face, it absorbs that first. Or like you said, with pillows, like I've seen a lot of people, especially when they're voiceover artists, when they're traveling in hotel rooms, they'll take all the pillows off the bed and just pile them up on the desk yeah. between their mouth and, you know, between their face and the wall. And and they've got a little impromptu vocal recording booth and then they'll just have to turn the air conditioner off, you know, because the hotel rooms always have noisy air conditioners. <laughs> I'm shocked when I hear people say that they like their recording, it sounds good. And then I listen to it and it doesn't sound good. Right. And and so I, I, I and this is not to I'm not trying to um, be rude about this, but like the the ear yes. that, that one develops over time does pick up more things. And so it's like, mine's still developing. Like I could spot a, a computer fan mm-hmm. an AC or like those sorts of things are like super easy, but I think, you know, you do graduate into higher caliber and more nuance that you pick up. And right. I think the more experienced your ear, but for somebody that wants to at least make sure that their sound is good. I'm not even saying superb. I'm just saying good sound. Mm-hmm. How can they develop their ear to listen better and to have that ability to discern when something is not sounding good. What advice do you have for somebody that maybe needs to work on their ear for sound? Yeah. And that, that is a big challenge and it's very, very important because I I do have one client in particular that can't hear the difference between a $40 Logitech headset mic and the $400 studio microphone that I had her buy. (laughs) She'd rather just use the $40 headset because it sounds fine. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. (laughs) And some people just can't hear that. And I don't like, I, uh, it's tough. Like, but what I would do is 
ask people, what are the best sounding podcasts you've heard? Like, what is a podcast that sounds really good? Like, obviously, anything that NPR does, any of the like the the bigger production, you know, journalistic companies, they know how to make stuff sound great. And then listen to their show back to back with yours and see if you can tell the difference. And if you can't tell the difference, see if you can ask somebody's advice who might be able to tell, to, to do that, somebody like me, and that you can send them your files and say, hey, I feel like this sounds pretty good. Do you have any criticism? You know, do you have any constructive criticism for me and how this could sound better? That is something that actually is on my mind constantly with podcasting and the nature of the internet nowadays, everybody is an armchair expert at this point or YouTube expert. You know, I've, I've been podcasting for two years, so I'm, I'm going to tell you how I do it because I've been doing it. And they, so there's a lot of people that have no business <laughs> talking about it. It's all about finding someone who is a real expert and then kind of like becoming an apprentice of what they do. Even if you can't interact with them directly, just absorb every single thing that they do. If they're guests on podcasts, if they're guests on videos, whatever shows they produce, whatever music they produce, you know, just following them intently. Oh, that's great advice. Uh, you are, you're the person I'm following, man. So uh, thank you for giving me that advice. I'm going to be like a, a puppy dog following your every move and listening and learning and continuing to develop and grow. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For the Love of Podcasts. And if you did, go ahead and share this with somebody that you care about who might find some value. I loved my conversation with Marcus DePaula and I consider him a new friend. And so I'm so excited about the next chapter of my life where I get to learn from greats like him. Not only is he incredibly knowledgeable and totally open to share his knowledge, but he's an all around great dude. And I'm so glad that we made the connection thanks to Clubhouse. Speaking of Clubhouse, next week we're in store for a treat because we have Steve Ulsher, who not only created Podcast Magazine, but he also created Club Pod, which is the largest podcasting club on Clubhouse. And we sit down and we talk about his own journey as a podcaster, as the creator of that magazine, and everything he's doing to create an amazing, amazing community on Clubhouse. So be sure to check that one out. And until next time, Remember, everything we do, we do it for the love of podcasts.